Hi, I'm Andy Summers, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. to be this is small town music this is big town music he's ahead of his time you know but he can't use it if only he could prove it well tomorrow's just a song away a song away a song away hey everybody welcome to rock solid the comedy podcast for all things music both new and classic i'm pat francis and joining me today in the zoom room this guy wears many hats he is a photographer He's an author. He's a composer. Uh, he sings a little bit, and you may know him best as the guitarist for The Police. Please welcome Andy Summers. Hello, Andy. Hi. <laughs> nice, nice to hear you. Nice to hear you, too. Andy, where are you currently? Where are we talking to you? I'm in Los Angeles. You're in Los Angeles. That's where I'm in Los Angeles also. Oh, okay, perfect. We're, oh, bo- we're, we're both enjoying some uh, sunshine today. That's fantastic. That's not bad. Not bad. Is uh, is Los Angeles your your home? Is this where you live full time? Yeah, I, do. I live here. Yeah, full time. And how long has that been? Oh, quite a few years now. Every my kids are here. Everyone is here. Yes. So, Andy, you uh, you have a book coming out, and it's not your first book, but no. uh, but this is a book of, uh, I would say, fiction. Yes, it's fiction based on alternate realities. Gotcha. And the book is called Fretted and Moaning. Yes. And it's coming out uh, in August via Rocket 88. And there's uh, many, many, many different editions you can buy. You can buy, uh, you can buy the classic edition. You can get the fretted and moaning signature edition. And you can get an ultimate edition. And first I want to talk about uh, the cover. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Who, who created this cover artwork? Yeah, I got lucky there. Um, a local artist actually called Laura Josephson, a girl I knew some years ago. And I think I sort of commissioned her to do that painting originally for a CD cover. Okay. And, um, you know, I actually had it up on the wall. And for years, I don't know why I never used it for the CD cover. You know, this is going back a few years ago. And then, you know, this project came up and, you know, the owner of the book company, if you like, was asking me, what do you want to do on the cover? Would, have you got a photograph? I said, I think I've got the right picture. And he said, <laughs> well, we might want to use photo. Anyway, I sent him that picture. And of course, he freaked out. I said, oh, my God, perfect. Yeah, it's... it's so that was the end of that. Yeah, so it's, that's the cover. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, the longer you look at the at the cover photo, I mean, there, there are stories in this photo, even. It's pretty cool. Yeah. He's really good. And uh, yeah, I was actually happy to meet up with her. She lives not far from me. Weirdly enough, she'd lived in San Francisco for 10 years, came back, and it was just about the moment she came back that I happened to contact her. Actually, you know, what happened was I was in the street, believe it or not, buying an ice cream, and this woman walked past me, dark glasses on, a big sun hat, and then as she went on past me, she said, hi, Andy, and I looked, I was like, God, who's that? Anyway, it was her. So maybe it was meant to be. Maybe it was meant to be. Well, I love it. It's, uh, it, look, if, you. if if you see this cover, you're just, you're going to want to buy the book immediately just by looking at the cover. Yeah, yeah it helps. So, Andy, yeah. you got 45 stories in here. Have you, uh, have you been writing, you know, fiction yeah. stories all your life? I've been writing all my life, pretty much, yeah. I'm always having to write things, you know, for 
social media, internet, albums, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, I've written much. Well, obviously, I wrote an autobiography. Sure. That was made into a movie. And a couple of these stories I had a, at least 10 years ago, and um, they were around. I sort of like dipped my toe in the water for fun. I think one like the Cleveland incident that's in there was an early one. And um, I must have had maybe six or seven of them. And I showed them to a few people and they went, oh, these are great. Why don't you make it into a book? And I thought, oh, well, um, yeah, maybe I could, could, you know. <laughs> of course, I'm so obsessed with music and making records that taking the time to do that hadn't really occurred to me to step right out. I'd made one big foray with the autobiography, but I got a lot of encouragement and I read a couple of them these stories on stage and it seemed to be going really well so that was really the encouragement and I think this is about maybe two years ago now that I really got down to it and you know I mean the whole writing process of course I had a lot of notes a lot of ideas sure. I had to get to it and really develop them as um, you know stories well, which I did you mentioned the Cleveland incident and that uh, that story it's, that's just a one pager and it closes out with the uh with the band, the bar band breaking into dead end job. So is, is this one of these stories? Well, that's close to, uh, yeah, the truth, uh, very early days with the police, you know, and I think it was Cleveland or Detroit or somewhere like kind of a tough call, but yeah, we felt, you know, coming from England with dyed blonde hair, <laughs> regalia and all that, it didn't really fit in with this scene in the Midwest at all. You know, as I sort of mentioned in the story. Sure. You, it says stuff like uh, lots of U.S. flags up in the place. Looks like we're going to have to drop some of the songs from the set list and, yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah, that was the that was the one that I read where I'm like, this this seems to be the most based in uh, in uh, yeah. in reality of, of all of them. But you're a great writer. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that the story Girls with Guitars. I really feel yeah. like you captured the voices of the girls in that story, uh, Alice yeah. and uh, Naomi, like I really felt like I was reading actual dialogue that girls that age would say. So bravo. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I've had a life of doing this and being out there and playing, sure. and being around people and fans and all the, all the people that you get involved with. And, um, uh, I guess to some extent, you know, I drew on, memories and impressions that I've been through over and over, you know, touring around America, you know, starting in little clubs and working up to stadiums over the years, um, you know, all over the world. So I guess, you know, although I hadn't put it to paper, I was sort of full of it. You know, once I sort of like tapped into it, you know, I was able to, oh, yeah, I remember something. Oh, <laughs> and, you know, gradually I sort of built a list of uh, ideas and notes that, course then had to be developed but that's when you get down to it and see see, see if you've got it in you to do it also you uh, you have children i believe yeah so you know you know how kids talk i mean as yeah. all all dads do so you probably incorporate a little of that here and there when yeah. you need it yes just draw on all the experiences you can yeah. uh what i like about the book is it's uh and uh, this is a compliment um it's easy to read it's easy to burn through these stories like you can pick it up and drop in anywhere and and just oh, and good. just uh and just have fun with it so i've i've been enjoying oh, it the uh the pr person sent me a a pdf of it so i've been going through it and it's just it's so much fun it's like it's perfect summer reading if i can say that yeah. if that well, makes I sense think that's fair enough and you know when i started into this uh 
definitely, you know, my instruction to myself was that, you know, this is, you know, really it's like comedy, mm-hmm. uh, dark comedy, because most of these have got sort of like twisted endings or sort of slightly tragic, ironic, we would say in England, ironic endings. Um, that's my sense of humor that, that, you know, and I thought, well, I could write a book uh, where, you know, if you like, the central character in each story is a guitar, or not necessarily the central character, but it is in each story. And somehow the various people in the stories' lives somewhat ro- revolve around a guitar somehow or the other. So I didn't want to start with some like really heavy, dense, you know, like, well, even pretentious book. I wanted right. to do something that was fairly accessible. But even that, to do that and to do it well, takes uh, it takes skill. I mean, if you read somebody like David Sedaris, these light sort of comic papers, there's a great deal of skill gets goes into um, making them read so easily. Right, you know, exactly. It's, it's difficult to do. But, um, yeah, I certainly wanted to strike a tone like that so that, you know, I'm not going to start off writing about, I don't know, chemistry. Or <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and, and I do like that the... the the through line is uh, chiefly guitarist, which is uh, obviously something you know about. So that's cool. How do you see yourself? Like if I was, if I ask you, do you feel like, are you, are you a writer? Are you a guitarist? Are you a photographer? How would you like to be remembered most? I'm definitely a guitarist, but um, you know, I seem to have enough in, within me to reach out to other things like, you know, you know, I think I like, I'm a pretty cultured person, but mm-hmm. you know, I've always been a complete movie addict and and book addict so i i do like stories and narrative you know and you as you go through life i think you find that these are the kind of things i like and um uh, so and i i would say this actually to a young musician you know okay you're going to play your instrument but you know you should take in a lot of other things like literature and great art house films and and let that seep into your musical work because it's going to help you it's going to broaden you and make you more interesting as a player you know my first and foremost talent was music you know and that's when i was 11 i in fact i started piano lessons at six so music was my expression and this is something i usually like to say when talking about these kind of things is that i think what i'm looking for in any form if you know i've done a lot of photography a lot of influences there and writing and the condition that I'm looking for in these other mediums, if you like, is the condition of music. Sometimes you get to a place where I think it's singing back to me and I go, I think we're getting there now. So this is kind of, this is, that's what's in my head. And right. That's the way I go for it. Yeah. That's the thing about the police. Um, I don't want to use the word intellectual, but you, the three of you always came across as intelligent, you know, oh. you weren't, um, you know, a lot of rock bands, you know, they just yeah, know how yeah. to do that. And that's what they do. But you guys, yeah, never, you guys always. Yeah. Yeah. You no, guys. We were very, uh, yeah. We were a little bit different in that respect. Yeah. You always seemed like a, a, there was a little bit more going on there uh, behind the scenes uh, <laughs> other than just, you know, a three piece rock band. So and I always appreciated that. So let me, I, would, I do want to talk about, you do your photography book, I'll Be Watching You Inside the Police, 1980 to 1983. Yeah. Did photography happen before you were on tour with the band? Have you always been a well, photographer? No, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, you know, of course, like anybody in life, generally, I, I had cameras and took pictures, but I, I hadn't like sort of grasped it like 
hey, you know, this is a medium that I'd really like to express myself in. It came about very early days in the police. I think we were in New York, and I was, uh, maybe the way it happened, surrounded by photographers with incredible equipment. You know, it almost seemed to be women photographers. Uh-huh. Nikons and Minolta's and bags full of gear and do look this way, look that way, do this, pose like this. You know, I got kind of involved in the photography and I said, you know, man, I've got to get a really good camera. So one of the women photographers took me out and I ended up buying a Nikon and a nice lens and that was it. And then I just started, you know, looking at a lot of photography and I guess at the beginning just trying to emulate it, take pictures and, you know, I didn't have a lot of clue, but I must have, you know, my visual sense started to wake up. And, of course, I was surrounded by sort of remarkable events all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of incredible. So I started to, you know, I, you know, I, I don't think I used the word to myself document, but what I was doing was really shooting a kind of document of my own life, which was all that those crazy years that I, I passed through with the, the police. I photographed everything, you know. And how much, uh, how much of, uh, of great photography, how much of it is, is luck? Because I mean, you're, you're grabbing that image in an instant. I mean, yeah. you know, a second well, later that's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a certain amount of luck. I mean, there's all kinds of styles of photography. Um, you know, I mean, Cartier-Bresson coined the phrase the decisive moment. In other words, it's like out on the street and you suddenly you grab it and you got it. But, you know, that takes a lot of um, visual acuity, a lot of self-training so that you recognize, you know, somebody throwing a shape or something on the street and you go, bam, you got it. But you've got, you got to be prepared. And that takes, you know, you, you train yourself to, to see like that. You know, if you're going to shoot like an action or an interaction between people on a street or whether you're seeing sunlight on the edge of a building or a silhouette at night or something like that. You know, you, you start to get a visual uh, vocabulary of your own. Partly you pick it up from studying other photographers, other, you know, photography, painting and acquiring a visual vocabulary. And then you learn to, I mean, you, you know, literally, I mean, for me, it's great fun to just go, oh, I have never been in the city, but I'm just going to walk around <laughs> with the camera. Right, yeah. And what I can get, you know, and I completely enjoy it. I've, I've never gotten bored with it. I'm still doing it. And so you'll still take, uh, you'll still take uh, a camera out with like a real camera, like not your phone. I feel like maybe. No, no I use, I'll use a Leica. Now I, I use a Leica M10 with three or four lenses, uh, you know, high end, very beautiful incredible digital camera with you know simicron simulux lenses that's yeah i feel like uh, i feel like since everyone has a a camera on their phone now that it's and everyone's taking pictures of everything all the time that it's a kind of a lost art but those who still do it with a, a camera that's the real deal and and you can it tell is. i mean yeah of course i've gone out you know and i've, I've got an iphone and it's got a iphone 11 camera sure and it, it's a huge competitor to the um and very threatening to all the camera companies because everybody's got an iphone <laughs> it's incredible what's happened but no it's not the same the iphone is not the same as using a high-end sumicron lens it's not i much prefer the feel of a camera in my hands and adjusting the lens you can't do that it's as well on an iphone you can't I like, you know, I can roll between, you know, 2.8 and F16. You know, I can adjust the, the – I like – you know, I've done it for a long time. 
I'm much more comfortable with a real camera if I'm doing real photography. You know, occasionally you'll get one with an iPhone, but um, I don't think it's at all the same. I guess a, a, a good comparison would be back in the day when you would record an album, everyone would be in the studio playing together. I mean, now if you're recording your part and sending a file to someone else and they're sending a file and then another person's piecing it together, that's not the same as being a band in the studio together. No, there's, you know, look, making music, I mean, you make it, I mean, the greatest thing about making music generally is making it with other people. And the moment when you really all feel it together and you really play very well together. This is a thrill of being in a band and, you know, you have great nights, nights that are not so good, but when it's really there and you really connect and the chemistry falls into place, it's, it's absolutely thrilling. Yeah. I mean, I have done some stuff quite recently, you know, where people send me their tracks mm -hmm. and I play on them and send it back. And, you know, I have to sort of, okay, it's guitar solo time. Let me just work myself up into a frenzy here. <laughs> put something down like you're standing there. Yeah. You, of course, you know, mod musicians, we're, we we can all do that now. You know, we can do it over the wires, if you like. But um, no, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, really live playing. I Probably a lot of the records I prefer to listen to are made in two or three days with the band all just in the, you know, in the studio together, getting a good take. Yeah. And you, you would know because by my count, you, you're on well over – I mean, 40 or 50 studio albums. I mean, with all the different projects, yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's just incredible. Um, how long did it take to make Outlandish Day Amore? Well, that's, you know, oddly enough, that's the sort of anomaly in our record making process because we had no money at the time. We were barely surviving. And the only way we could um, record was, you know, we're back, back in London. There was a studio um, in just outside of London, a place called Leatherhead. And they would sort of let us in on um, Sunday afternoons to have a go for a few hours. So, I think it actually literally took us six months of sort of Sunday after, not every Sunday afternoon, <laughs> gotcha. but when we could get in. And we slowed, we started with one set of material, which was pretty rough, and then threw it out and then got another piece in. And <clears throat> that album was sort of pieced piece together until we had the whole thing in place and felt, okay, we can sign off on this. Not that anybody at all was interested um, in us because we were completely unknown. The, the one thing that... Um, put it on the map, of course, ultimately was the release of Roxanne. Those 
It didn't make us at that time, but it was noted. Oh, wait a minute. These guys, might, we might want to watch out for them. The other albums were all made very quickly. I think the second album was made in 10 days. Wow. Because by that time, we'd sort of made it. We were a hot item. Right, we exactly. Yeah, we were gigging every night. So we went in the studio. We were, you would all, all, it was like the three of us all playing together, and we were completely into our band thing. Uh, the others were pretty much like that. Um, we never sort of really labored over it. Though. You know, we didn't take years to make a record. <laughs> I want to point out on the first album, the song, it, well, it's not really a song. It's a spoken word, Sally. Yeah. I was blue and lonely. I couldn't sleep a wink. And I could only get unconscious if I'd had too much to drink. There was somehow something wrong somewhere. And each day seemed gray and dead. The seeds of desperation were growing in me head. I needed inspiration, a brand new start in life. Somewhere to place affection, but I didn't want a wife. And then by lucky chance I saw, in a special magazine, an ad that was unusual, the like I'd never seen. Experience something different with our new imported toy. She's loving, warm, inflatable, and a guarantee of joy. She came all wrapped in cardboard, all pink and shriveled down. A breath of air was all she needed to make her lose that frown. I took her to the bedroom and pumped her with some life. And later, in a moment, that girl became my wife. That almost feels like that could have been uh, a story that would you could plop into this uh, into the well, book, yeah. Fretted and Moaning, because... <laughs> Yeah, so that was so fun, and you know, be, as when that album came out, I think I was in eighth grade. So uh, hearing that was quite eye-opening because I'm like, "What is he?" I, I might not have even known what you were talking about yeah. <laughs> at that young age. Well, I think you get it now, but of course, yeah. <laughs> if you like, that was an early, early effort, and it sort of somehow seemed to fit in with the punk ethos. I think when we did it on stage, and we did it on stage, um, you know, and I'd come out and do that, and it would give Sting a break. <laughs> singing throat for a few minutes and we we get a blow up doll and bring it onto the stage and probably smash it with our guitars yeah that was your alice cooper moment <laughs> that kind of thing yeah but everybody liked it you know and believe me the blow up dolls in those days were pretty ugly <laughs> <laughs> uh one of the first songs also from the band that you uh co-wrote with uh stuart and sting which is yeah. it's such a killer is a uh, dead end job Love it yeah. so much. 
And that's, uh, that didn't even make, that was just a single, right? That was like a, a double yeah. A side single you guys did. And, uh, just great. You guys are just well, tearing it up. Days, very, very much buried in the very overwhelming punk atmosphere in London at the time, you know, which faded eventually, but that was like trying to be part of what was going on in London then. Yeah. Um, eventually we sort of naturally transcended it musically and went to sort of a different place as we found our own signature, if you like. Yeah. I can't think of a, I can't think of many bands that in a short time span of just five studio albums changed their own landscape, you know, from your first album to synchronicity, you guys were just, I don't, it was like you guys are surfing and you're on top of the wave, the entire five albums. Yeah. I, uh, when, when I talk with my friends about music and we talk about a band that has a perfect catalog, uh, the police always comes up because I, I don't think there's one clunker in the bunch, uh, song wise. I mean, every single song on every single album, I love it. Yeah. So you, you, you guys nailed it. Uh, Zenyatta Mandata, 1980 behind my camel an instrumental written by Andy Summers yeah. wins a Grammy award. That was one your bandmates didn't uh, take to immediately, if, if well, I'm being nice. Story. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know what kind of moodiness might have been going on between us. <laughs> it was a strange record because we were, you know, for, I think, tax purposes, we were sent to Holland to record this album. We got one month in this studio. And then in the middle of it, our manager dragged us out of us and made us go back to England and Ireland for a week which you know we were in the middle of trying to make an album it was completely insane but you know we headlined these two massive you know many untold thousands of people turned up mm. then went back to finish it off but um yeah behind my camel was in there and i proposed it because i was into this sort of weird instrumental music sting didn't want to do it and um stuart was willing to play on it and i think what happened was i did it with stuart and then Ding took the tape and buried it in the garden <laughs> under a tree or something. He did some weird thing. Like no, there was just like a little bit of interplay. We found the tape, obviously. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, it won the uh, kind of, uh, Grammy for the best instrumental. Now, when, when you, when you yes. win a Grammy then for it, um, <laughs> do you give it back to Sting a little bit? You know what I'm saying? I, I know that uh, you guys... Yeah, probably, yeah, that sense of waves it in his face. <laughs> Yeah, now, and who gets the Grammy? Do you just get it? Does the no, I got it. Yeah. You, you just get it because you wrote it and yes. performed it. That's my memory. Yeah, I have it at home. 
Yeah. All right. So the band doesn't get a Grammy just because it's on a police album. Andy Summers gets a Grammy. Yeah. Yeah. No. Congratulations, yeah. Andy. I've got a few other ones, nominations, tear along those lines. The, um, yeah. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Some great, the police have some great B-sides too, some, and some quirky things, and you are a part of a lot of these, including Friends, written and sung by you, from, uh, there's a B-side for da do 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 da 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 I couldn't do that. Ain't a man or poet friend. I know just how you'll taste. Your limbs go sliding down my throat and never go to waste. Your death of ghosts will sadden me until I drop your essence. I know your life was not in vain when digestion is commencing. Consider this a celebration and the deepest path of fame. I hope that you will dine on me when I come to an end. You have, uh, what do I want to say? You do have a darker, quirky sense of humor for sure. Well, yes. And, you know, I think, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the book, A Stranger in a Strange Land, I think was the book I was reading at the time. And, uh, somehow influenced me to to write that song. And I think possibly another spur to whatever I was going to write had to be very in sort of direct contrast to what Sting might write. Right. Otherwise we'd be competing in the same place. So, you know, I mean, I at least had enough savvy to do that, you know. And is a song like Friends, is that presented to Sting for him to sing or did you know you would sing that one? I didn't think he'd sing it. I'm sure. I think I'd seen the seen the light by then. <laughs> Ghost in the Machine, 1981. It's coming up on its 40th anniversary in October. That's that's incredible. That's the uh, first time I got to see you guys in concert. I believe it was at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, and uh, uh, Bow Wow Wow was your opening act. It was an amazing oh, yeah. show. But uh, now you have a song on that album that's fantastic that you wrote alone and that Sting did sing Omega Man. It's fantastic. Yes, well, that's a bit controversial because I did write that one, and um, 
Sting did sing it, and well, it's it's got a slightly unpleasant history because that was supposed to be the first single off that album, but I th- it, I think it was a very upsetting proposition to Sting, so it didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. But that's what A and M wanted to put out as the first single. It's funny because when I hear stories about things like this, when you think of what the singles were, they seem yeah. like like they were the perfect choices. Now, had Omega Man been released as the first single, I would probably be saying that was the perfect choice. It would but, have been a number one. Yeah, yeah. There's a very cute video that I, I don't know how I saw this, but there's somewhere on YouTube, there's a young girl, she looks about 16 or 17, and she mimes uh, all of Omega Man. She's sitting there with a guitar. She's sort of miming the singing and, and playing the guitar. It's very cool. She plays the guitar, so everything. Thank really you. Really pleased by seeing seeing these videos of kids on YouTube. Uh, I'm assuming kids were doing this all the time, but now we get to see it too, and it is it's quite impressive um, the talent and fun that's out there. That's amazing. Your guitar work on Omega Man. I mean, I don't play an instrument, Andy, but it's so impressive to my ears. I, I really never hear anything quite like your guitar playing. When did you when did you tap into your unique? sound or what technique are you using on a song like omega man well you know i've got might i say dare i say pretty good technical chops you know i'm pretty fluent player um i think one way i look at this is that i think all of us in the police we were so lucky to meet each other because i think somehow the three of us playing together brought out uh these abilities you know mm-hmm. or the this this taste to to play this way and i think if we played we'd all been in other bands it, we may not have ever reached this point but this is what we did together you know for my case i can tell you very specifically you know i was pretty you know i've been to college in california i you know played classical guitar for years you know i was a pretty trained musician and played with orchestras everything now i was in this rock trio so um what was, I going to, what was the point I was going to make? Um, we were talking about your technique and your your sound and your style. Yeah, so you know, I've I, you know, I was a pretty full on player by the time we got to the thing. Oh, I know, I was going to say, but you know, what was so fortunate that as with me and Sting, you know, the two harmonic players, mm-hmm. uh, Sting's background, taste wise, was very similar to mine. You know, we sort of grown up with all the same kind of music, including you know. Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, Sonny Rollins, Rolling Stones, Beatles, Blues, Brazilian music. It was almost a parallel, two, two, two parallel uh, universes that came together. I thought that didn't make sense. But, you know, you the <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know what you're yeah, saying. You get my drift. Yeah, I'm not yeah. expressing it well. But, so, um, but with the given that we were a rock trio, and so whatever influences we had, we had to bring into some kind of pop song, rock song format and be able to go out there and play them with, you know, aggression and, you know, sound like a rock band. But there was a lot of other information coming in that maybe, you know, if you were a punk band in London in 1977, you weren't going to have that information. But Sting, you know, he came from a jazz fusion group, actually. Yep. And I'd done all this stuff already. So, you know, and then Stuart somehow sat, sat somewhere in the middle. And then was a, another thing that worked very well for us, and particularly for Sting, was reggae. Uh, we weren't a reggae band at all, but um, we were able to adopt, in particular Sting's case, the sort of loping, um, 
reggae rhythm on the bass lines so that it gave him more opportunity and, and less difficulty in singing out over the bass lines instead of, you know, hammering out 16th notes all the time. So. And sometimes when, uh, sometimes when white guys lean into reggae, it's not accepted for, you no. know, it doesn't seem authentic, but you guys were able to do it and it was, uh, and get it out to the masses and we, we accepted it. We loved it. Well, the songwriting was really good. Oh, well, we were good at it. No, we were a very good band. Look, I, um, look, look, I like that you're saying, I like that you know that you guys were a good band. I, 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 uh, yeah, no. I mean, you're, you're humble, but, but also, you know, yeah, yeah, or else I wouldn't be yeah, talking yeah. to you 40 years after Ghost in the Machine was released. Yeah, no, we were, we were, we were really good. Um, it's one of those unique things. I mean, I just think we're all so lucky to have met one another. Yeah. And of course, the band changed all our lives forever. Now, when I when I would see you live, Stuart is one of the greatest drum live drummers I've ever seen, and in, in in the studio too. But when you guys are playing live, I'm just watching Stuart. He's all over the place on the kit. Now, with you, you have to listen because you can't believe all the sound that's coming out of Andy Summers' guitar. Like you're the only guitar player on that stage. And for lack of a better word, you are making quite a beautiful racket on that yeah. stage. It's just, it's incredible. Well, I think that, you know, as we start as a trio and, you know, there are other rock punk trios around and it's always, you know, like, you know, the wall of noise, you know, yes. very heavy, you know, and yeah, you know, my, sensibilities maybe are a bit more delicate or elegant than that but you know i'm playing rock guitar um i felt that over the course of a one and a half hour two hour set on stage i needed to t vary the sound a lot you know color it a lot and this was right at the beginning of you know when guitar players was just starting to really get into pedals and effects we'd gone from like you know just a single reverb on the amp or vibrato, this was early stuff with like Fender amps to like, now we suddenly had something called a phase 90 pedal and then came an electronic wah-wah and slowly these things started to come along and I started to incorporate them and I, not too far into it, I was able to have built a, you know, special pedal board yeah. where, you know, I'd really utilize it so that, you know, the color of the guitar throughout the show, you know, would just keep changing, you know. Uh, and it did it. very experimental let me ask you about uh, after after behind my camel wasn't accepted uh, with open arms by the other uh, the uh -huh. other guys in the band um did you were you uh, were you hesitant about presenting material after that or or did the grammy uh, give you some confidence to well that's a good question but no no i mean uh, no i didn't no i i don't have any humility in that sense i, I thought i had to better song I, I thought i had the best songs actually well good you have to that's yeah. how that's how you have to enter it you have to everyone has to feel like they have the best songs no i don't think anyone had that was above me musically i think i was you know this is why it's, it's so unique you know you, mm -hmm. you, you, it's hard to take apart you know people say oh well we could have done that i remember other musicians going well we could have done that I go, no you couldn't no you couldn't no, you couldn't copy that. You can't. It's completely unique, and it's never going to be. You know, there's never going to be another band like it. No. That's it. If you know? if if everyone could do it, we we would have heard it already. Well, we got copied a lot, obviously. Well, well we changed the lexicon of rock. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it. You influenced people, is how we'll say <laughs> it, if we're being kind. Yeah, and again, a, a bunch of other cool songs during the Ghost in the Machine. Um, 
sessions. Like, uh, am I saying that right? Is it Shambell? Is that how I say it? Shambell. That was uh, another instrumental that I recorded. Yeah. Excellent song. I love that. And you know what's, you know, what's funny, Andy, I'm not a big instrumental guy. I always like uh, lyrics because then I can sing along to it, but your instrumentals, uh, these grab me like those two albums that you made with Robert Fripp. Yeah. Uh, I advance masked and bewitched. Those yeah. are, those are so much uh, fun to listen to. They're just so great. Yeah. They were fun to make. We had a good time doing it. And uh, actually, just so your listeners know, th those are being re-released later this year, I think, after the summer as a box set. Fantastic. With notes, and maybe there might even be a couple of extra tracks. So that's coming out again. Good to know, because those are hard to find. Like, you have to, you have to, if you don't own them, if you didn't get them when they were first out, you're paying top dollar on eBay. So, yeah, let's give the money back to Andy and Robert. Yeah, they were pretty influential albums. I mean, the I Advance Mask got into the top 60 on Billboard, which for a quirky instrumental album was pretty impressive. <laughs> and, um, well, I mean, the pedigree of you and, and Fripp, I mean, that uh, that brings out the hardcore fans for sure who want to hear yeah. what you guys do together. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to Synchronicity. Mm. So, the song Mother. When I first picked up Synchronicity, that was not a song that I enjoyed that much, if I'm being honest well, with you. Well, there's two synchronities. Which one? The first one or the second one? No, no, I'm talking about, I'm talking about the song Mother. Oh, Mother. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah, well. when, I, when I first heard that, it was not a song that I enjoyed that much. But I it's have to... It's weird. It's not supposed to be enjoyable. Right. Really. But I have it's to tell you... Artifact in the middle of the album. <laughs> but I have to tell you, and it's, and it's funny too, the placement of it, it's like boom, right here in the middle. Like you guys didn't... You guys didn't tuck it at the end of a side. You guys, boom, right there, track four. Yeah. 
now, as I've gotten older and my musical tastes have changed and my sense of humor has changed and all those things change. Now I love the song. I love it. It's so much. It's just, uh, it's just frenetic. It's, um, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. There's nothing else like that song in the police catalog. No, I mean, I think no. I came up with that again, you know, like there's no point in competing with Sting, but actually Sting loved it too. And yeah. Let's put that on the album. Of course, it absolutely freaked out A&M. Of course. We were huge by that time. And every track supposed to be like a popular song written. And I've got this song that's more like Captain Beefheart. <laughs> right. And uh, it's really good. It's very clever because it's written in 7-4. It's got that really quirky, weird, but difficult to do guitar solo and me doing the vocals. So, you know, this is not a simplistic, stupid uh, pop song. It's quite complex and quite difficult to pull off, but it, it's there. I think it's pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it is, too. Everybody wrote about it because it was so off the off the wall for a band like us with that kind of profile at that time that everybody mentioned it. <laughs> it sort of worked in the in the opposite way. Not like, oh, I'm never going to listen to that band again. In fact, it got us a lot of notice. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how Murder by Numbers didn't make it onto the original vinyl album. I think it was relegated to the cassette I, and the CD. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of... I mean, if we're going to call it a B-side, even though it is on the CD, that might be one of my favorite B-sides of all time. I mean, that song is is amazing. Once that you've decided on a killing First you make a stone of your heart And if you find that your hands are still willing Then you can turn a murder into art there really isn't any for bloodshed You just do it with a little more finesse If you can slip a tablet into someone's coffee Then it avoids an awful lot of mess Because it's murder by numbers One, two, three It's as easy to learn as your ABC How did it not well, make I had, it? I wrote the the riff. I had the whole chords and that riff. Da -da -dun, ding, 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 I had the whole thing. Yeah. And I, I was just, I would be playing it on my own in the studio, noodling, and Sting finally sort of wandered up, oh, you know, I, I might, that's good, um, that's really good. I might, uh, I might have something that could go over that. <laughs> anyway, he looked in his big lyric Bible and he pulled out a lyric. And that's what we got. And you put it together and you and Sting. It it. And I think, it, again, it was a record company that, you know, I think they were murdered by numbers. Oh, we can't possibly put that on this band's album. And so it didn't make it onto the album. Of course, it's been subsequently on all kinds of releases. It's, it's known. Yeah. It's fun to play, actually, because it's in 6-8 and it's got these really cool chords that, you know, most bands wouldn't play. So, um, yeah, we did it a lot in, in, in concert. Yeah, it's a great, it's, I, I think a lot of people might think that it was on the, on the original release, uh, even though it wasn't, because it's that well known among uh, police yeah. fans for sure. Yeah. Uh, someone to talk to, there's a B-side written yeah. and sung by Andy. You wanted Sting to sing this one, he wouldn't. Yeah, yeah I can't remember quite what happened. Um, I have one 
major journalist friend who says, God, someone to talk to. Man, that should have been a major hit police. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's sort of um, slightly beneath the uh, covers, that one. Yeah. Never came out like it should have done. And then uh, another great B-side that you co-wrote with Sting is uh, Once Upon a Dream. Oh, yeah. Once Upon a Daydream or something. Yeah. Once Upon a Daydream. Yes. Thank you for correcting yeah. me. I haven't heard that in quite a long time. I can't remember how it goes, actually. Yeah, I know that we were quite pleased with that when we did it. It sort of came out of nowhere and suddenly we had this other piece. You know, yeah. Once upon a daydream, I fell in love with you. Once upon a moonbeam, I gave that love to you. Once upon a lifetime, I know it must be true. When the months had told us I'd have to marry you. Once upon a Okay, I just have a couple more questions, Andy, and then I'm going to let you go enjoy the California sun. Yeah. I uh, And again, I want people to make sure that you go in August. You can go order it right now. You can order it now. It's on available for pre-order on andysummersbook.com. That's right, andysummersbook.com. And uh, your website is andysummers.com. Twitter yeah. is asummersmusic. And Instagram is at Andy Summers underscore official. So uh, take note of all those. But number one, andysummersbook.com. Uh, once you go there and you just see the cover, you're going to love it. And you've already yeah. heard from me that yeah. what I've read is really fun. And uh, it needs to be it needs to be read just like uh, Andy's music needs to be listened to. And I'm so excited that I Advance Mask and Bewitched are going to get re-released. Yeah. Uh, every breath you take, the singles, you guys re-record... Don't Stand So Close to Me, that was released. I think you re-recorded to do 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 to da 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 also.
Have we recorded it? Did we? I don't remember. I, I remember. No, we definitely did. Don't stand so close to me. Yeah, because that was released. Was that? And were you guys really? Was the plan really to record like all the hits over again? No, no. All right, that's I, just a myth. No, there was a weird, very weird moment. You know, we were sort of we come. Everybody, you know, the authorities got us back together like sort of like a year after we'd broken up or something like that. We're all in London. And, you know, to do something, I don't I don't even know why we did it, but I know we recorded up in Swiss Cottage in London and Sting didn't want to write a new song, so we tried to do another version of Don't Stand So Close To Me. But the whole thing got completely um, ruined because Stuart went out on a horse to play polo, mm-hmm. fell off the horse, broke his collarbone, couldn't play the drums. That was the end of it. And um, I think we maybe we did something with a... A drum, drum, machine. drum machine, yeah. It they were all like, everyone was hanging out. Are they going to get back together? Are they going to get back together? <laughs> you know, it was, you know. That's always what people say. That's always what people yeah. talk about. So, the, the truth was, it was kind of a sad, you know, moment because, you know, Stuart fell off a horse, you know. Otherwise, the band may have gone back out. Who knows? But it didn't happen. So, Let me ask you this. 14 years yeah. ago, you guys did the reunion tour. Uh, was that enough to satisfy all the members in the band. Was that enough to put it? It's kind of an incredible tour. It's almost, yes. almost the biggest tour of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's right up there, you know, it's a complete stadium tour. It was great. You know, I thought we the best we'd ever played. Uh, you know, we'd all none of us has ever stopped playing, you know, right. made all made many records. I thought it was, you know, it was a fantastic playing right. tour, musical tour and of course the technology was so great by then. So we benefited uh, on everything. It, it's almost like be impossible to repeat that you mm-hmm. know, state of the art tour. It was fantastic. Yeah, I was I was there at Dodger Stadium. What I what I loved about it is you know, sometimes when a band hasn't been together for this long and they go back out on a big tour, they want to augment the band with horns and singers and keyboard and all this stuff. And you guys kept it as stripped down as you possibly could. Yeah, and I appreciated that. That's kind of a definite thing. And I didn't want all that. I hate it. Yeah. I want it to be guitar out front. I don't want to hear horns or any no. keyboard. The real sound of the police is a trio. And, you know, I mean, God bless Sting for at least agreeing to that. I mean, yeah. No, I, I was. I thought we played great, and yeah, yeah. Because I think, satisfying. I think the worry ab- amongst uh, amongst uh, police fans were, is Sting going to want to do the songs the way he interprets them? So you know, as a solo artist, and thankfully that wasn't the case. And he didn't. he yeah, saw the value you know, early on. There was a little bit of movement towards that, but it was just rubbish. You right? Know, like, no, don't do that, man. Just you know. 
you can't change message in a bottle into a fucking bottom over. Let's do it <laughs> the way it is. Everybody be exactly. And and that uh, that tour <laughs> that tour is uh, you can you can get the live album certifiable, which is a great yeah. live album, a great DVD too. If you didn't, if you weren't lucky enough to be there like me, that's the best way to uh, to check yeah. it out. 1987 XYZ Andy they convince you to record a solo album and sing about being out front for that you know, many songs I, I, did, I did it you know i don't know at that moment it was a strange time i said my head was probably not really attached to my body you know, <laughs> uh, very kind of a weird time and yeah i did do that album and i thought it was a pretty good album it is a good album I did go out with it and i sang all the songs and i don't know somewhere in there i thought mm, i'm not sure if this is for me to be the singer out front and do this so I didn't. I, I right. You, know, you never did it again. Direction. I made. You know. I joined up with another label and made uh, what's the film? Mysterious Barricades. Yeah. And let the you let the guitar do the uh, the singing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's. Um. I do want to tell people. Andy has a great documentary called "Can't Stand Losing You: Surviving the Police," based on your memoir. One train later. Loosely, yes, exactly. and uh, there's a great it, it, there's a great scene in there where you're I forget what country you're in, but there's a karaoke bar and they're singing a police oh, yeah. song, and you go in. I can't yeah. I can't imagine. Well, I, I mean I saw the documentary, but if you were actually there and one and you were singing a song by your favorite band and one of the members walked in, yeah, my head would explode. A totally freaky moment, and I can give you. You know, I was the film director was in Japan with us. And I said, let's go down to Shin there's an area in, in, in Tokyo called okay. Shinjuku. And within that area in Shinjuku, there's a this tiny area called the Golden Guy. And it's this little labyrinth of streets. It's really amazing. It's one of my favorite places in the world. I've been there a few times and done a lot of photography in there. Anyway, so the film crew was following me around. And it was about to snow. It was like January or February. And we we're wandering around around about midnight. And... So he said, all right, well, that's it. You know, there's Andy wandering through the Golden Guy. And as we were coming out, going back to either the cars <laughs> to take us back to the hotel or whatever, and we started to hear um, every breath you take. This is incredible. And the guy's following me with his camera, and we see this tiny little bar, karaoke bar. Yeah. And that's where it was, and I said, follow me. And that's what that's the scene you see. I walked in, I had my hat on, my coat. Yeah. No one. They got, and they're all like drunk and singing every breath of the I joined it. I actually gave me the mic, took the hat off, and everybody recognized me. So um, brilliant, brilliant moment. Yeah. I said, oh. And it's a real moment. Nothing staged about it, which is what's Nothing. fantastic. 
no, it's uh, wonderful that that happened. You, you just you can't pray for things like that. It was so so spontaneous and wonderful. All right, everybody. Uh, I'm going to thank Andy Summers for giving us this time today. I want you to go to andysummersbook.com and pre-order Fretted and Moaning, 45 short stories that are going to keep you company all year long. Andy, I always ask the artist that I interview to pick one song from their catalog for me to feature as our playout song. I know it's difficult. What one would you like me to play? Ah, uh, well, um, you mean a police song? Any, anything you want. Oh, I see. Yeah, it could be anything that you, that you were, you played on or were a part of, or you're proud of. Well, no, I, I, I would opt for a message in a bottle, I think. All right. That's a fantastic one. And Andy, thank you so much. I wish you uh, continued success on promoting the book and, uh, and let's buy this thing, people. Thank okay, you so, thank you, Pat. Thank you so much, Pat. Andy. And everyone, please enjoy Message in a Bottle. Cheers. Bye. Bye.